just said Contra, a podcast of sacred theology hosted by the Sacred Doctrina Project. I'm the host for this evening, Dr. Daniel Lindman. I'm coming from Ave Maria University. Before we get going, I do want to share we have a few things coming up in our Sacred Doctrina Project that you should keep an eye out for. Most approximately, we'll be doing a couple of satellite sessions at the ACPA conference, where you'll be able to find a number of our members, and uh, even the great uh, Stephen Law will be speaking there. Also, this summer, we'll be having uh, our second annual conference that'll be held at Thomas Aquinas College's East Coast campus. Uh, Steve Long will be a keynote along with Father Thomas Joseph White, and then we'll have plenary speakers, Dario Spisano and Patrick Gardner from Thomas Aquinas College also. So it promises to be a great conference. You should go ahead and head to our website to find out more about it and look for a call for papers, which will be coming out soon. Also, we have continuing our uh, certificate programs that you can uh, sign up for. Uh, that's run by our own Dr. Ryan Brady, who's here with us this evening. Do you want to share anything about that, Dr. Brady? Yeah, sure. Thank you, Dr. Lemon. So we have certificate courses in moral theology. It's really to mystic ethics is the name of it, but it's primarily moral theology although it covers a whole wide range of issues from mystical theology to practical things like whether or not contraception is a viable option. So it's a very interesting, fascinating set of courses, and please do check it out. Thank you so much. And uh, I'm castigated by my own conscience here. The, the theme for our conference coming up in the summer is Grace and Sanctification, Divine Causality, human action, and supernatural glory. So there's a lot of good stuff that will be going on in that conference. Um, oh, we also have with us today uh, Dr. Kevin Clark, coming from St. Patrick's Seminary in Menlo Park, California. Uh, good evening, Dr. Clark. Hello, gentlemen. Great to be here again. Uh, now, I, I asked uh, Kevin beforehand whether he had anything he wanted to share with his projects, and he confided in us that nothing's up open for public scrutiny at the moment. <laughs> you know, at, at, I'm happy to say I'm in the same boat, so I, I don't feel quite as excluded. You know, I, I've, um, I've been working on uh, some translation work on Maximus Confessor, trying to work my way through his Opuscula, and I'm, I'm making some good progress there. Uh, good. I've also, yeah, I've thought uh, about doing things like that. I, <laughs> I got my grades in. Recently, of, uh, of teaching a class on the Gospel of John to the uh, the missionaries of charity to their novices who are in Beautiful. formation and that was uh, that was really delightful great experience to look at the Gospel of John with the eyes of the contemplatives and you know I, I did the thing that uh, Dr. Waldstein did with us when he taught us the Gospel of John and brought them some pure spikenard to smell what Jesus would have smelled like. <laughs> That's nice. Uh, so they, they really, uh, they really enjoyed that, but. Well, beautiful. Very interesting, well, Kevin, that you're doing a Puscala as well. I've been working on the same for Aquinas for the Aquinas Institute translation series. So uh, yeah, hopefully we'll both start moving into high gear and having yeah. something we can tell our listeners about, but perhaps we well, could turn to the, Topic of today, what are we going to talk about today, Mr. Lemon? We're talking okay. about, yeah, Irenaeus, right? Um, this is, so it's very exciting. Recently, we heard uh, uh, Irenaeus is, uh, Leon is going to be uh, declared a 
doctor of the church. Now, up to this time, he's uh, widely regarded as a father of the church. I think that's he's, the Catholic Church views him as a father, but now he's uh, has this. He's going to be given this designation as a doctor of the church. Um, and this is uh, I'm really excited to have you with us, Kevin, because this is you know this is the sort of thing, Kevin. This is your wheelhouse, and uh, I'm hoping to learn a lot uh, this evening uh, as we discuss this. Um, so first of all, maybe we should just as preliminaries speak about what's a father and what's a doctor and what are, uh, why do we why do we need to promote someone who's widely considered a father of the church to a doctor is that a promotion or is this just recognizing something that was always there yeah that's a great question because obviously not all fathers are doctors and not all doctors are fathers so there's some sort of uh, distinction there uh, and i was looking into this a little bit myself lately uh, you know, old reliable Catholic encyclopedia has a fantastic article uh, on the uh, doctors of the church. And uh, in that article, John Chapman writes that uh, certain ecclesiastical writers have received this title, that is doctor of the church, on account of the great advantage the whole church has derived from their doctrine. So uh, from what I can tell, Doctors of the church are those whose, whose writing was influential uh, upon the church over the course of time, regardless of their era. Whereas the fathers of the church, uh, you know, they, they're in particular drawn from antiquity. They're authoritative. Their, their works are uh, widely received and, and they're, they're orthodox. So, so like uh, origin, right? Right, right. Well, <laughs> or, well. I'm sorry. I was, didn't think we were going to open another podcast. The can of worms just yet. You know, if we really want to talk, you know, there's some who who uh, might even want to see Origin named a uh, a doctor of the church. So that would be uh, that might be something interesting to talk about later. Another uh, time. Another time. <laughs> but uh, anyway, Irenaeus. Kind of breaks the mold a little bit because he's the first of, of the doctors of the church who is actually a martyr so prior to Irenaeus there's no martyrs who are doctors of the church and and uh, also he is now the oldest you know the last shall be first the first shall be last well Irenaeus now he's born before any of the other doctors of the church were ever born because previously Athanasius was the first of the doctors of the church yeah so it's kind of interesting that we're going all the way back for this uh doctor of unity in Irenaeus he grew yeah. up in in Smyrna in Asia Minor so Smyrna is one of the local churches that Ignatius of Antioch wrote uh, one of his right. epistles to while he was in captivity on his way to being fed to the lions in Rome and um there's another famous uh, bishop from Smyrna, and that's Polycarp. So Polycarp, the, the famous martyr who bore witness to, to Christ, even at the age of, of 86, publicly martyred. And you, you've got the uh, story of his martyrdom and the smell of the baking bread uh, as he died. And so Irenaeus talks about how he knew of Polycarp in his youth. And Polycarp, of course, we hear from Tertullian that he was established over the Church of Smyrna by the Apostle John himself. 
so apostolic succession is a big thing for Irenaeus. So mm. uh, in a way, you've got uh, John to Polycarp to Irenaeus. That's beautiful. It's, it's also fascinating, right? Because he had so much Gnosticism around him at the time, right? That's what he was seemed to be gearing his uh, polemic against in his against heresies is largely Gnosticism. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. It, so, and, and this is one of the challenging things about reading the, his his magnum opus, which is the Against Heresies, or as he uh, calls it himself, the refutation and overthrow of knowledge falsely so called. But <laughs> Against Heresies, I guess, has a better ring to it. But if you sit down to read know. that work, you know, which is five books long, is very challenging in the beginning because he he goes through this sort of a, a Gnostic cosmogony where he describes where, uh, you know, where they get, where from the scriptures, they get the idea for all of their deities. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a little bit about this, uh, you know, I, in, in my naivete as a young patristic scholar, I was thinking, well, you know, um, it, studying the fathers of church is, is pretty safe. You know, there's not going to be all of this uh, historical critical stuff uh, is surrounding the fathers of the church. Yeah, and it's interesting that this is one of my early experiences in the academy was this idea that Irenaeus kind of had the power of the ecclesia behind him that he could then suppress the emergent Gnostic Christianities. You know, and if you're a member of the North American Patristic Societies, anyone who's a member of the North American Patristic Society uh, knows that, you know, they've tossed around renaming the society for a while. Uh, you know, some of the suggestions are the Society for Early Christianity uh, or the Society for Early Christianities. And in that notion of multiple Christianities is, you know, Irenaeus confronts those who in the early church are contradicting what Irenaeus calls the rule of truth or the rule of faith. So you have, for those who are not familiar with it, there's this thesis by a fellow named Walter Bauer. And Bauer argues that, that heresy precedes orthodoxy. And you can kind of see where he would get that idea right because yeah. you you don't really have dogmatic definitions and very clear expressions of things like the homoousian doctrine until you actually get someone who's coming along and challenging or asserting something that seems off right but Irenaeus's point is that the Gnostics are wrong precisely because they are going against what has already been received right this idea of the rule of truth or the rule of faith is already there it's already handed on and is pristine and recognizable and so therefore you know they're they're in the wrong and he gives this marvelous metaphor in uh, chapter eight of book one where he talks about the gnostic approach to scripture is like someone looking at this beautiful mosaic of a king and what the gnostics do then is they pick off little tiles here and there and they rearrange this beautiful mosaic into an image of a fox or a dog 
and then they say that's the king and it's a great image because you get the idea that Irenaeus sees the, the whole content and unity of the scriptures right there in that image and of course it's the divine author who's putting together this great image of the king but you know the the false exegetes who are they're really eisegetes they're reading uh their own interpretations into the little tiles of the mosaic mm-hmm. to to get their own their own picture and he further solidifies this this analogy by taking lines from homer and each line is about a different each, each line of poetry is about a different character in the homeric corpus but he makes it to read as though it's all that, that each one of these lines is about hercules and he sort of retells a, a new story about hercules uh using these different these different lines and his point is that nobody would would tolerate this kind of violence being done to the homeric corpus so why yeah. why do we allow yeah the Gnostics to profane the scriptures in this way. Doesn't he also talk about like it, the Archon being uh, fruit or something like they have all these big fancy names for, for the gods, for, or for the divinity, but then he replaces some with like fruits and things just to make fun of it at one point. Does that ring a bell? Oh yeah. It's, it's really, you know, it's really complicated. And I mean, you can go through book one and, and read yeah. all about, you know, Sophia and the, and the, you know, the, the, the different deities and how they're, they're introduced by the Gnostics and so on. Yeah. Yeah. I started going through it recently and it was just so much detail about such silly things that I didn't get through the whole work, but it is fascinating that he had the discipline to sit down and go through this nonsense. And even though he studied under Polycarp, who studied under the apostle John, and he knew the truth, the unadulterated, pure, beautiful truth. And yet he was willing to sit down and read a whole bunch of really incoherent and silly ideas, um, just for the sake of, you know, promoting the truth. And but yeah, so why I had brought that up with his being in somebody who was surrounded by Gnosticism was simply to say that I guess the reason why he could do that was because he was so well grounded. You know, he he understood apostolic succession. He knew what was passed down from Christ through the apostles. He understood the deposit of faith, so he wasn't going to be led astray. And uh, yeah, so it's great that he also then has that emphasis on apostolic succession because that's the the way that we know we can remain in the truth is if we're living with the you know the truth that it was once and for all what's that phrase of the vincentian canon is called called omnibus or something Mm -hmm. that which is held by all and everywhere oh we had that yeah that's a tertullian that started that right I've heard heard it as the Vincentian canon from Vincent of uh, Lorraine, but maybe it is Tertullian. Held by all, for all time, always. Yeah. I want to draw a couple of points off of what you just said, Ryan, and and that is that that what Irenaeus is doing is is eminently pastoral. Uh, He recognizes that the, the the Gnostic preachers who are you know they have this gnosis and gnosis means secret knowledge and so um there's something kind of coveted and mysterious about these gnostic preachers you know if you could just give me the 
give me the gnosis and then I will also become enlightened and like you. And so they, they create a sort of a, a, a dependency upon themselves. So beware of those spiritual authorities who create dependency upon themselves. And Irenaeus, in a way, in, in making the truth known about what they're actually teaching, he's showing, look, I get what, what these guys are saying, and it's ridiculous and wrong, and don't, don't be uh, uh, tripped up by them. But yeah, also, so there's something that's really remarkably scholastic about, Irene about Irenaeus's work against the heresies, because he really goes through and and gives a rather systematic treatment long before you have what is typically considered scholasticism. And, and I heard a, a really great paper on this topic at, at the North American Patristic Society by Father Andrew Hofer, a, a Dominican, oh, yeah. uh, where, where he was kind of challenging the, the notion that, uh, that scholasticism is only medieval, that um th that really you you have a you know these these uh fairly rigorous direct theological treatments of topics uh even before chalcedon so um it's it's not like chalcedon suddenly arrives on the scene and and changes everything and and uh um, so uh, he's he's a great model for what thomas will do later in presenting the arguments of his opponents and then responding to them in kind. Yeah, there's so many interesting things to, to go off on here. And, uh, you know, I, I want to I take us in this direction, if, if, uh, if you're okay with that. And that is, Against Heresies, great work against uh, the Gnostics. And uh, Ryan, I, uh, I had the same, same kind of uh, uh, sense as I was reading through it. I've gone through it with students before. And just being grateful that somebody else took the time to learn all this and synthesize it and put it and, and refute it systematically. Very grateful because I would not ever have had the patience to deal with that. Um, yeah, I I don't have the patience to deal with you know David Bentley Hart's nonsense, let alone all the Gnostics. Yeah, um, right. So uh, here uh, I wanted to point out though, or just recall to our minds. I mean. It's been interesting because Gnosticism has kind of been coming out in the news more recently, in Catholic news at least, because uh, our Holy Father Pope Francis has, uh, mentions it explicitly in his uh, Apostolic Exhortation, Gaudete and Exotate, right? Um, and he, he talks about this contemporary Gnosticism. Um, so I was wondering whether we should see that part of what it's being signaled perhaps by Irenaeus being declared a doctor is that we should kind of look back at what he says about this contemporary Gnosticism and, you know, returning to Irenaeus as a sort of a, a, a model theologian, I suppose, uh, to address this contemporary problem. And I was wondering if you guys had any thoughts about that, whether, uh, you know, how, how much intelligibility there is to this or not, I don't know. So what is the Gnosticism that Irenaeus had in mind? It, it was somewhat of a, a fight against a, a dualist tendencies, I imagine, Kevin, where maybe I know there were some who kind of maybe proto 
Manichaeans that thought of their matter as being kind of evil and things. And I know there were some at the time that thought that Christ came uh, for, to kind of liberate those who got thrown into bodies by the bad creator God or something. Um, I want to think through what exactly Irenaeus was fighting against in order then to think about how moderns are also somewhat Gnostic. So can you, can you add to what I just said or clarify that and say some other points that uh, he was fighting against in Gnosticism? Well, yeah, you know, obviously uh, modern Gnosticism, you know, we're not talking about uh, Ogdo ads and, and deck ads and yeah. you know, duo deck ads and, <laughs> you know, all of the, the, the various aeons uh, that Irenaeus deals with in, in his cosmogony there. But, uh, but the reason that the fathers remain perennially useful to us is because there, there really is nothing new under the sun. And even if we don't have um, contemporary Gnostics presenting the same cosmogony, we still have that same um, dualism between matter and spirit in our world today. That uh, in, it's almost like it's inverted though, in some ways we, we've become we, instead of the Gnostics who are so spiritualized, uh, we have the, um, the focus on materialism today to the neglect of, of the spirit. So it's a different kind of um, uh, a focus, but also, you know, there's, uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, dualism that comes out of uh, German idealism and the, the enlightenment focus on um, you know, spirit and thought and whatnot. So, uh, yeah, can I just jump in? It seems to me one connection to the dualism would be that even though we're materialistic in today's age, it's as if all that matters is the state our souls are in, you know? So like, all right, with my body, I'm going around and, you know, committing adultery or whatever, looking at porn or stealing, I don't know, whatever, but I'm doing it for good reasons and my heart's in the right place. And so it's okay. Um, I wonder, does that make any sense? Could that be what it is? Like, it's like, we just think if, if we have a good intention and our soul is right, then that's all that matters. And that is not really, it's not really important what we're doing with our bodies. Yeah, that's a good insight. You know, we have the two aspects of the works of mercy, right? We have the corporal works of mercy and spiritual works of mercy. And we, we don't want to neglect one or the other. You know, I mentioned the, um, the missionaries of charity earlier, you know, they're out there with the poor doing the corporal works of mercy, but they're, they're also, they, they have very uh, deep contemplative and enriching uh, lives of prayer. So we run into trouble really when we neglect one or the other. And so, yeah, Irenaeus uh, really does help us to, um, you know, against this, uh, this new Gnosticism, yeah. So the, the Holy Father, his account of this sort of new Gnosticism or contemporary Gnosticism is that they, he says, they think that their explanations can make the entirety of the faith and gospel perfectly comprehensible. And they absolutize their own theories and force others to submit to their way of thinking. They reduce Jesus' teaching to cold, harsh logic. 
that seeks to dominate everything. Uh, those are just some excerpts from it. So I, I suppose then we could see some sort of affinity with this Gnostic understanding, you know, this idea you have to have this kind of secret knowledge in order to come and advance. Uh, it's hard for me sometimes to see that there's more than a simple kind of surface uh, prima facie similarity to what the what the Holy Father is talking about um, and what Irenaeus was combating in his against heresies. But I suppose what you guys are we're getting at is that that there's just kind of the spirit about the approach to knowledge and its relationship to how we live our life uh, that that, it, the, that you can find a real sim similitude. Is that right? Yeah, I, I would say so. And, and, and I think the, the point about the creation of, of dependency on the part of the preacher cannot be stressed enough. You know, uh, in the great prophecy from Jeremiah about the uh, coming of the new covenant, Jeremiah talks about how they will have no need for anyone to teach others anymore, to say, know the Lord, know the Lord, mm -hmm. or the Lord will write his law directly upon the, you know, their hearts. And Gnosticism kind of, Valentinian Gnosticism kind of does the opposite of that. You have this crucial need for special Gnostic teachers, these, these interpreters, because otherwise the the polloi, they're just not going to get it. They're not going to understand it. So you have these various grades of excellence and holiness. Uh, <laughs> and obviously, you know, that's how they, they make their, their money. You know, they, they create this dependency that you just, you need to continue having these Gnostic preachers around so that you can have access to the uh, mm -hmm. Gnostic religion. And, you know, I, I think that the Pope's monitions should be well taken that anyone who creates the, that same dependence upon himself is similarly dangerous as the, the Gnostic mm. preachers were, that, uh, that they don't need to stand in between the exposition of the faith and growth in holiness. Yeah, and so I'm, I'm reminded, I can't remember where it is off the top of my head, maybe one of you we can recall, but Aquinas says somewhere, he, he talks about the vetula, right, the old woman, and that no teaching should, you know, sort of give offense to the old, the old woman, that somehow her, her piety is a, is a measure, and this, this seems something powerful about that, and I always, of course, think of the, the beautiful uh, souls I see so often praying in the, in the parish, you know, their rosaries every day after daily mass, and uh, you know, the, that's the vision of the old woman. I feel like maybe it's been a perennial fixture of the Catholic Church. Uh, but uh, yeah, you remind it, me of how the, the Pope, sorry, Daniel, I just want to jump in real quickly. The Holy See rather used to say that some things were offensive to pious ears. Yeah. You no, know, it's that sentiment. Like you just, if you have the sensus fidelium, some things just aren't right. But and where so, are you going with that? Well, I was just thinking that, so, because you know, we one could. I feels like it seems like one could go too far with this and just say, "Oh, well, look, you you three clowns are all you know doctors of theology. You're doing all this stuff, and it's just and you're selling your knowledge and and things like that. Aren't don't we stand stand condemned? Uh, 
so basically i'm concerned that we we keep our jobs um and this little intervention i no, uh, that's i mean yes but that's not <laughs> i was just thinking that there's still a place for systematic treatments of theology and this is what where what uh, uh kevin was pointing out early on about the kind of the proto-scholastic approach of irenaeus it's not as if he's he th he's saying that all the teaching of the faith is just immediately evident and you just kind of get it but there is a deep accord with the, the pious faithful that that when you teach the faith it should resonate with them one two uh, there's also um this this idea you can't separate out sort of the this living sort of pastoral dimension from the speculative dimension right there's uh these things have to go kind of hand in hand yeah, truth is me. pastoral yeah exactly yeah. so um and, and so being faithful to the truth of the gospel is always being a faithful pastor so just trying to navigate that to avoid falling into one extreme or the other is that intelligible at all or no that's that's really helpful and i think it's important as theologians if you especially if you're a, a paid theologian like like we are uh it's important to give it away uh as as often as you can so as not to give scandal you know so there, there really is something to that also your your point about not offending the piety of the old woman that, that thomas talks about you know, i think about for example you know i teach classes on scripture to seminarians and sometimes i have to talk about you know some historical critical stuff and and uh, i have to say to them you know this is important for you to know this is uh, uh this is uh you need to know this professionally but don't preach this <laughs> don't go in, into the pulpit saying you know that there were three isaiah's or that the pentateuch was written um you know after the time of king david or you know not like i myself hold these positions but um it, it is important from a historical critical perspective to to uh the church wants these things uh taught but i can't tell you how many times i've heard such things from uh, from the pulpit to us in the pews myself and i'm thinking what good does this do for the lay person you know all these q theories and whatnot they're good they're good to know but at the same time you know there there's a, a sense in which people come to this this level of knowledge about the scriptures through years of study and there's certain mm -hmm. you know presuppositions that, uh, that that you have to understand about uh biblical exegesis and reading and and um things like that before you can really present this kind of information and you know the rabbis had much the same approach about certain scriptures uh you yeah. know certain scriptures they wouldn't allow young people to even read before yep. they came to be a certain age but you know the atheists the new new atheists are experts at this you know heart uh, david bentley hearts you mentioned him earlier but he's actually really useful in his uh, polemics against the new atheists you know folks like richard dawkins will will point out every single scripture that seems to paint god in a certain light but then 
doesn't at all present the church's tradition of reading these passes, passages spiritually. And I know we're kind of uh, going off on a, a little bit far from Irenaeus at this point, and I apologize for that. But, you know, these, these issues kind of all intersect. Yeah, well, we're maybe off Irenaeus a little bit, but I, it's, I still feel like this is relevant because I think it's, it's going to be helpful for us to articulate exactly why what that isn't Gnosticism, because I think that, you know, as people start to look into Irenaeus and think about Gnosticism or that, you know, there's a danger of there being a lot of bad understandings of Gnosticism, right? But it, Gnosticism doesn't mean that everybody's ready for every, every kind of knowledge, right? It, it's saying like, saying, look, there's a certain things you're not ready to hear about or study about, and I'm not going to talk about those with you. That doesn't make you a Gnostic, right? Because, well, yeah, why? Why doesn't that make you a Gnostic? Uh, I suppose you say, well, because I'm not saying that there's a hidden knowledge that's going to keep you from salvation unless you pay me $9.95 uh, for, you know, 10 monthly installments or something like that. But I am saying that, you know, whatever is received is received in the mode of the receiver. Um, and we can't receive everything all at once. Yeah. Um, and we're all at different places. And there's some who it's given to teach and understand. Uh, but, you know, you know, let not many of you be called teachers. Um, and so there are a few uh, who are obliged to fill that office for the good of the church uh, as best we may. Um, and that doesn't mean that we're, uh, we're trying to place burdens or obstacles before the, the faithful. Uh, and I suppose if we're doing our, our job well, we'd be working to remove obstacles from the faithful, right? That's precisely our work, that, that it's sometimes either moral or, you know, scriptural or um, speculative conundra uh, come before the faithful. And, um, and it's our job to try to help uh, relieve them of that burden. I mean, I get, I get all kinds of emails from students about uh, mostly moral problems and <laughs> uh, questions that, and uh, they come into my office and ask me, you know, scriptural difficulties and, and speculative difficulties all the time. And that's, I feel like I'm doing my job when I'm removing those burdens from them and, and helping alleviate them with sort of the learning that I've, I've, I've obtained over the years. Yeah, but yeah. Back, back to that. Sorry, go Kevin. Ahead, Brian. Thanks. Uh, I just wanted to go back to that idea then directly of how saying that there, you, a certain person might, might not be ready for the truth is not Gnosticism because there simply is just an order of learning, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. even St. Paul spoke about, yeah. you're not ready for solid food, I give you milk. Yeah. St. Thomas was really big on manuduxio, leading people by the hand. Yeah. In fact, in that commentary on book five of Boethius's De Trinitate, he has this whole order of how you should learn things. You know, you need to know, know math and begin to abstract from matter before you can think about immaterial beings properly. And then to think about theology, you need to do philosophy first, if it's good philosophy. So there's an order of learning, but that doesn't mean that we're Gnostic if we say, well, there's some things you're not ready for yet. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, what, were you going to say something, Kevin? I, I do have a transition I, I back to Irenaeus directly. On uh, Daniel's point about mm -hmm. uh, uh, answering the scriptural difficulties, 
of, of students that, uh, that, that so often we as professors, um, you know, the kinds of questions that we face have to, do, have to deal with uh, scriptural aporia or difficulties. And Irenaeus is a master at this. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, if you look at his, um, if you're really looking to, to read a digestible and short work by Irenaeus, there's also a work called The Demonstration of the Apostolic Preaching. And I'll make sure that, uh, that links to his works are in the, uh, the show notes. But, um, you know, he, 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 he follows um, much the same pattern as what Justin Martyr does in his expositions on the, um, um, the authenticity of the, of the Savior following the, um, you know, the, the prophetic words, showing that the, the prophecies do actually pertain to the person of Jesus Christ. So whereas in, um, against the heresies, he's dealing with from a more Gnostic perspective, uh, how the, uh, the, the Gnostics abuse the scriptures and take them out of context uh, in, um, in the demonstration on the apostolic preaching, he's showing how the scriptures actually pertain to Christ. And I think that's a really important thing for us to do. I think a, a lot of times in the, um, uh, in the, bibli in the biblical sciences, we, we want to distance the Old Testament scriptures from the person of, of Jesus Christ and sort of treat them like they, you know, are these um, historical artifacts that meant something for the people of their own time and, and not necessarily, um, we don't want to appropriate them as Christian texts, but that's not what the fathers of the church do at all. And that's not what the, um, the, the really the exegetes through all Christian history have done. Uh, instead, they endeavor earnestly to show how the Old Testament scriptures veil uh, Jesus Christ. And so exegesis of, of the old lifts the veil for the people of the new. So uh, this is another way in which Irenaeus is a, uh, a doctor of unity, that rule of truth, uh, the rule of faith links uh, old and new. Um, and this is one of the reasons I, you know, I'm not a big fan of the, the, the phrase, you know, Hebrew scriptures and, and uh, Christian, test, uh, Christian scriptures um, instead of Old Testament, New Testament. Uh, it, to say old and new uh, doesn't mean the old is, is obsolete, not, not in the least, but that there is a remarkable continuity rather than discontinuity between the first dispensation and the yeah. covenant instituted by Jesus Christ. And so it, what you keep pointing us back to in, the, in these discussions is that, you know, Irenaeus really is someone uh, who's a model teacher. Um, and perhaps is, uh, this, there's some particular... It's, well, not perhaps, but it seems what you're indicating is that there's some particularly important and effective ways in which we can learn from uh, Irenaeus, not, not only what, you know, sort of the lessons he was teaching, uh, which are well and good, but even, or perhaps even more, most especially, how he went about his teaching, how he went about 
and dealing with the problems of his time. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Irenaeus really is a, a fascinating figure. You know, he, he talks about, for him, the key to this relationship between the old and the new is the theology of recapitulation. And I haven't mentioned that just yet, but, you know, the idea that of, uh, of heading up again, and that's what Christ does. Christ heads up again and renews the whole creation by means of his redemption. And, and Irenaeus takes this word, uh, Irenaeus wrote in Greek, uh, by the way, but against the heresies, survives mostly just in, in Latin, although there are fragments that's, that still exist in the Greek. Irenaeus takes this word, a recapitulation, in, from Paul's uh, anakephaliosis, which means heading up again. So, so Christ renews everything by this um, heading things up again. His Mariology is extremely significant as well, along these same lines, because Irenaeus uh, talks about uh, Mary as the new Eve. So just as Christ is the new Adam, takes this idea from Paul, but he takes the idea of new Eve implicitly from Paul, I suppose. Um, if, if Christ is the new Adam uh, who redeems fallen Adam by means of a tree, uh, so also Christ, the new Adam, redeems the old Adam by a tree. The old Adam was taken from the uh, virgin earth, as Irenaeus says, and so also the new Adam comes from a virginal womb, uh, the virgin earth. And I love that image of Our Lady of this uh, a virgin earth. Christ is the clay of the new Adam uh, derived from the virgin earth of Our Lady. One other yes. thing in terms Go of ahead. Mariology is that this image of Mary as undoer of knots, that comes from Irenaeus, that... that um, uh, um, Mary, by her obedience to God's plan, undoes the knots that were tied by the disobedience of Eve. Yeah, I was just going to say that it, that reminded me the virgin earth quote reminds me of St. Ephraim. So apparently St. Ephraim gets it from Irenaeus. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, but then when you were speaking about the recapitulation idea, I also wanted to segue to Mary because he does seem to be very important, both for his way of understanding scripture, his way of reading it and being a good exegete, and for his teachings about Jesus and then his connection to his mother. And so the one quote that is really sticks out to me is from the proof of apostolic preaching that brings together all of these ideas. So there he says, Adam had to be recapitulated in Christ so that death might be swallowed up in immortality. And Eve had to be recapitulated in Mary. Recapitulated apparently is just uh, implicit, but Eve had to be recapitulated in Mary so that the virgin, having become another virgin's advocate, might destroy and abolish one virgin's disobedience by the obedience of another virgin. So it's the same idea like you were speaking about, Kevin, of this untying of knots eve got us into this terrible knot through her disobedience she got us all you know twisted and got our desires all messed up and she undid the integrity that adam had when his body was subject to his mind and his mind to god 
And then Mary comes in and she undoes that all. It's just, it's just so beautiful. And she is linked up with Christ who, you know, calls Adam into himself and she's this new Eve that somehow, you know, advocates. He says she, the new Eve advocates for the old Eve. It's just fascinating. You know, she's got this, this role of being an intercessor who really makes a difference in our lives. So I wonder if that's one reason that Pope Francis wanted to make him uh, a doctor of the church, this, this powerful, these two ideas I just mentioned, of his way of reading scripture and then the teaching on Jesus and his mother. Yeah, those are two definite goods we can take, uh, take from it, regardless, as well yeah. as his model as, a, as just as a teacher. Um, and uh, yeah, and a student of, of scripture and tradition. Um, I'd like us to, to tackle one perhaps a difficulty, and this is something that we should think about perhaps with a lot of the early writers. Um, and that is sometimes uh, in the early church, we hear uh, fathers or even doctors will, uh, well, perhaps they'll go off the rails a little bit in terms of the, the, the teaching of the church. Um, so Kevin, would you explain it looks like uh, Irenaeus might have, well, gone off the rails a bit and, and, and maybe we can think about how, how we should, how should we take that from someone who's upheld as a doctor and father of the church? Yeah. Uh, Irenaeus, there, there's one aspect of his, his teaching that merits some discernment and perhaps caution and, and that is it's so mild and gentle. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, he reads Revelation 20, verse 6, very literalistically. Uh, at it seems at times where he talks about uh, Revelation 26 talks about a uh, thousand year reign of the saints with Christ. And so, uh, you know, this is known as Kiliasm or millenarianism. The idea that um, that uh, the you know um, there will perhaps be a resurrection of all and then a one thousand year reign of Christ on this earth with the uh, the elect before uh, entrance into the um, the glory of the kingdom and. You know, I think this was a kind of an open question for a long time. Uh, we, it's not only Irenaeus who holds this position, but uh, but Justin Martyr and Tertullian. And so, you know, what's the church's perspective on this issue? It's interesting that there was a decree by the Holy Office in uh, 1944 that addresses this. And the question was presented what must be thought of the system of mitigated millenarianism that plainly teaches that Christ the Lord before the final judgment, whether or not preceded by the resurrection of the many just, will come visibly to rule over this world. And the response confirmed by the Supreme Pontiff, the system of mitigated millenarianism cannot be taught safely. So, so the church gives us a kind of a caution here uh, regarding uh, Kiliasm. And so, uh, and, and this, it's helpful to think about what a doctor of the church actually is. You, you know, that decree, naming someone a doctor of the church doesn't guarantee 
that their writer that their writings are uh, free from error. It's not even an ex cathedra statement. So, um, you know, I suppose one could say, well, I don't consider, <laughs> um, you know, but uh, not my doctor. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you, you know, at, at the same time, I think there, there's no reason really not to give Irenaeus this distinction. I mean, you know, the man was writing in the second century for crying out loud, um, you know, so, it, and, and this is one of the reasons why I think that if somehow Origen of Alexandria were named a doctor of the church, we'd be having this um, same discussion only with, it, it'd probably be much more animated. Uh, there's a lot more stuff to be cautious about. <laughs> there's a lot hey, more yeah. that, that Origen uh, gets wrong than, uh, than Irenaeus does here. And I'm not even totally convinced that, uh, that you can't somehow possibly hold for a, uh, uh, some kind of eschatological millenarianism, but, um, yeah, but yeah you know, it, it is, it is kind of problematic. Yeah. The, uh, the catechism cites what you mentioned from Denzinger there, Kevin, in number 676, uh, but it's interesting the way it's worded. So it says the church has rejected even modified forms of this falsification of the kingdom to come under the name of millenarianism. So it has rejected them, but then it says, especially the intrinsically perverse political form of a secular messianism. So certainly this political form that's intrinsically perverse that sees all of our it's almost like a liberation theology where everything's about this life and we're just going to be able to, we want to be able to live it up as much as we can even. So going further than liberation theology, that certainly is wrong. Um, but at least it's not as bad as the mitigated form. The mitigated form seems to certainly have been uh, rejected, but I wonder if there might be some kind of way of speaking about, well, in, in you know, what exactly is mitigated form? You know, maybe it's a question of nailing down what it is precisely. And perhaps Irenaeus's view uh, wasn't condemnable. I don't know. I, I mean, yeah, you know, honestly, I think we should follow Augustine's uh, interpretation of the thousand years that, that he offers in City of God, where he, he takes it as, uh, as spiritually symbolic, the perfection of of time because a thousand is the cube of 10 and uh mm. um you know rather than reading it in an overly literalistic way there's just so many problems that we've seen throughout christian history with the um and, and not just uh with the the chiliasm and the era of the fathers but then you've got the and i don't want to get into it now we take us too far afield but you know joachima fiore and the idea of the three the three ages and and, and mm -hmm. so on and so forth but um um but yeah i i think that the interpretive tradition is best served on this particular passage by um by some spiritual exegesis sure i just yeah. think at least we can try to let them off the hook a little bit i mean yeah, i know others true. said this others were on the same page as him in the early church yeah and, and you almost and the seem to have a kind of a millenarianism in some of the 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 kind of out there mariological eschatology stuff that that you 
that you get with some of these these uh, these prophecies so yeah well very good well um i think that's pretty much brings us to time gentlemen it's uh it was such a delight having this conversation with you both um likewise so, yeah well, thank you can i ask so a much. question can i put you both oh. on the spot yeah sure yeah. okay i have my own idea here but but who do you think is going to be next who's the next doctor of the church the next doctor oh no <laughs> Man, there's a lot of saints to choose from, right? Uh, I don't know. They say, I don't know. John Paul II. Yeah, that would be my hope if I were Pope. But uh, who knows? Yeah, well, you, you seem to think someone else. You're probably going further back, huh, Kevin? Yeah, you know, I, if I were, um, if I were trying to place a, a vegas bet on it i would i'd probably go with newman but, uh, uh newman, since i'm not a, a, a betting man that's and i newman. have to go with the movements of the heart i i would hope that the the next doctor of the church would be would be maximus you know ah yeah. uh, yes uh irenaeus of course the doctor of unity but um but but what would be better for east-west relations than to, to come together and on maximus love for say max oh, that, that, those are good calls those anyway, are good calls you know, before the other day, Kevin, I would have said Cyril of Alexandria. Then I realized he actually is a doctor of the church when I was yes. looking into who they are. So love Cyril. Uh, yeah, uh, he's, I'm yeah, a big awesome. Cyril fan. So, well, very good. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much. And thank you all for listening. Please be sure to continue joining us uh, for our, the Sid Contra podcast. And you can check us out at sacredatrinaproject.org online you can get on email list find out what's happening just so you know we do have pending 501c3 status you can donate to us and uh provided that i didn't do something with the paper paperwork and everything goes through uh that should be a tax deductible donation all right so uh thank you all that's uh, that will conclude our uh, said contra podcast thank you thank you